Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of excellence, talking about Long Ago and Far Away by W. H. Hudson. Chapter 15, um, he did a great job of explaining the uh, strange fear slash allure of serpents. I thought that was what I took away from that chapter. The way he explained how, even though they are like the scariest thing, um, there is kind of something mesmerizing and almost like fascinating about a snake. Where even though it's terrifying, you also kind of want to keep your eyes on it and, and, and look at it and figure it out. Strange creatures. Like, there's something about a snake that it like just seems to... The look of it, the having, like, being around one seems to just cut straight to some sort of primitive part of your brain. Um, it's all instinct. Like, in, it, it, it uh, awakens sort of instincts and stuff. At least that's how I feel. I've got a bit of a phobia, though, of snakes. I think mine goes beyond, like, fear and goes into irrational fear territory. I, uh... Sorry, I'm just putting eye drops in. I guess I can still talk while I'm putting eye drops in. Once I was uh, staying at a mango farm in in outback Australia, really in the outback, like hours away from anywhere. Like if you know where Darwin is, it's kind of in the middle of the Northern Territory of Australia. You basically go to Darwin, which is already in sort of the outback, and then you drive seven hours further into the outback to a town called Madarenka. Anyway, that's where um, I was working on a mango farm for a couple of months, years ago. Madarenka. I'm going to actually Google it, see what comes up. You can um, you can open it up on maps and have a little look just where it is. Um, anywho, yeah, sorry, working in Madarenka. Um, and we were living on the farm where we were working. They had little, uh, I don't know, shacks <laughs> that you could live in. Anyway, uh, there was a snake and I was up on a balcony and the snake was down off the balcony, down on the grass. And I always remember this because the snake was ages away. And yet I was frozen solid, frozen to that balcony. I could not move. It was the weirdest sensation. Um, and it was irrational because, like, there is no way that that snake really could have even gotten to me. Um, and if even if I wanted to get to it, it would have taken me a good, you know, 30 seconds to walk to it, to dismount the balcony I was on, go down the stairs, go across the grass, you know. And yet I was frozen like a, a damn iceberg. <laughs> um... And so that that's a weird memory that always sticks in my head whenever I think about snakes and, and, and my weird irrational fear of them that time. And there's been other occasions too um, where it doesn't even make sense to me. Like nothing else would really make that happen to me, even if it was something scary, you know, some kind of a creature or emergency or something. I feel like I would still be able to get a grip of myself and go, and, and be cautious, but also be logical. So irrational fears are weird because the logic element of it just goes away. And maybe it would come back eventually after, you know, a minute or something like that. But 
yeah, I don't know, there's a good long time, seconds, maybe maybe minutes, I'm not sure, where you are just kind of unable to access that logic. It's a very weird sensation to reflect upon. All right. Enough rambling on. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The um, There was no discussion, by the way. No one left any comments. That's cool. No probs. So let's continue on and we'll read chapter 16, which is called A Serpent Mystery. Oh, here we go. We're still going on the serpent theme. Oh, excuse me. I still have this cough and I'm kind of strangely out of breath. It's doing weird things to my lungs. It was not until after the episode... Okay, that was weird. That'd be, <laughs> I'm starting the chapter now. It was not until after the episode related in the last chapter and the discovery that a serpent was not necessarily dangerous to human beings, therefore a creature to be destroyed at sight and pounded to a pulp lest it should survive and escape before sunset, that I began to appreciate its unique beauty and singularity. Then, somewhat later, I met with an adventure which produced another and a new feeling in me, that sense of something supernatural in the serpent, which appears to have been universal among peoples in a primitive state of culture and still survives in some barbarous or semi-barbarous countries, and in others like Hindustan, which have inherited an ancient civilization. The snakes I was familiar with as a boy up to this time were of a comparatively small size, the largest being the snake with a cross, described in the earlier chapter. The biggest specimen I have ever found of this ophidian was under four feet in length, but the body is thick, as in all the pit vipers. Then there was the green and black snake described in the last chapter, an inhabitant of a house, which seldom exceeded three feet, and another of the same genus, the most common snake in the country. One seldom took a walk or ride on the plain without seeing it. It was in size and shape like our common grass snake, and was formerly classed by naturalists in the same genus, Coronella. It is quite beautiful, the pale greenish-grey body mottled with black being decorated with two parallel bright red lines extending from the neck to the tip of the fine-pointed tail. Of the others, the most interesting was a still smaller snake, brightly coloured, the belly with alternate bands of crimson and bright blue, this snake was regarded by everyone as exceedingly venomous and most dangerous on account of its irascible temper and habit of coming at you and hissing loudly, its head and neck raised and striking at your legs. But this was all swagger on the snake's part. It was not venomous at all and could do no more harm by biting than a young dove in its nest by puffing itself up and striking at an intrusive hand with its soft beak. Then one day I came upon a snake quite unknown to me. I had never heard of its existence of such a snake in our parts, and I imagined its appearance would have strongly affected anyone in any land. Even in those abounding in big snakes, the spot too in our plantation where I found it served to make its singular appearance more impressive. There existed at this, that time a small piece of waste ground about half an acre in extent, where there were no trees and where nothing planted by man would grow. It was at the far end of the plantation, adjoining the thicket of fennel and the big red willow tree on the edge of the moat described in another chapter. This ground had been ploughed and dug up again and again and planted with trees and shrubs of various kinds which were supposed to grow on any soil, but they had always languished and died 
and no wonder since the soil was a hard white clay resembling china clay. But although trees refused to grow there, it was always clothed in vegetation of its own. All the hardiest weeds were there, and covered by the entire barren area, to the depth of a man's knee. These weeds had thin, wiry stalks and small, sickly leaves and flowers and would die each summer long before their time. This barren piece of ground had a great attraction for me as a small boy, and I visited it daily and would roam about it among the miserable half-dead weeds with the sun-baked clay showing between the brown stalks, as if it delighted me as much as the alfalfa field, blue and fragrant in its flowering time and swarming with butterflies. One hot day in September I had been standing perfectly still for a few minutes among the dry weeds when a slight rustling sound came from near my feet and glancing down I saw the head and neck of a large black serpent moving slowly past me. In a moment or two that flat head was lost to sight among the close growing weeds but the long body continued moving by slowly, so slowly that it hardly appeared to move and as the creature must have been not less than six feet long, and probably more, it took a very long time, while I stood thrilled in terror, not daring to make the slightest move, gazing down upon it. Although so long it was not a thick snake, and as it moved on over the white ground, it had the appearance of a coal-black current flowing past me. A current, not of water or other liquid, but of some such element as quicksilver, moving on in a rope-like stream. At last it vanished, and turning I fled from the ground, thinking that never again would I venture into or near that frightfully dangerous spot in spite of its fascination. Nevertheless, I did venture. The image of that black mysterious serpent was always in my mind from the moment of waking in the morning until I fell asleep at night. Yet I never said a word about the snake to anyone, It was my secret, and I knew it was a dangerous secret, but I did not want to be told not to visit that spot again, and I simply could not keep away from it. The desire to look again at that strange being was too strong. I began to visit the place again, day after day, and would hang about the borders of that barren, weedy ground, watching and listening, and still no black serpent appeared. Then one day I ventured, though in fear and trembling, to go right in among the weeds, and still, finding nothing, began to advance step by step until I was right in the middle of the weedy ground and stood there a long time, waiting and watching. All I wanted was just to see it once more, and I had made up my mind that immediately on its appearance, if it did appear, I would take to my heels. It was when standing in this central spot that once again that slight rustling sound, like that of a few days before, reached my straining sense, It sent an icy chill down my back, and there within six inches of my toes appeared the black head and neck, followed by the long, seemingly endless body. I dared not move, since to have attempted flight might have been fatal. The weeds were thinnest here, and the black head and slowly moving black coil could be followed by the eye for a little distance. About a yard from me there was a hole in the ground about the circumference of a breakfast cup at the top, and into this hole the serpent put his head and slowly, slowly drew himself in, while I stood waiting until the whole body to the tip of the tail had vanished, and all the danger was over. I had seen my wonderful creature, my black serpent unlike any serpent in the land, and the excitement following the first thrill of terror was still on me, but I was conscious of an element of delight in it, and I would not now resolve not to visit the spot again, 
Still, I was in fear and kept away three or four days. Thinking about the snake, I formed the conclusion that the hole he had taken refuge in was his den, where he lived, that he was often out roaming about in search of prey and could hear footsteps at a considerable distance, and that when I walked about at that spot, my footsteps disturbed him and caused him to go straight to his hole to hide himself from a possible danger. It struck me that if I went to the middle of the ground and stationed myself near the hole, I would be sure to see him. It would indeed be difficult to see him any other way, since one could never know in which direction he had gone out to seek for food. But no, it was too dangerous. The serpent might come upon me unawares and would probably resent always finding a boy hanging about his den. Still, I could not endure to think I had seen the last of him, and the day after, and day after day I continued to haunt the spot, and going a few yards into the little weedy wilderness would stand and peer, and the slightest rustling sound of an insect or falling leaf would experience a thrill of fearful joy, and still the black majestical creature failed to appear. One day in my eagerness and impatience I pushed my way through the crowded weeds right to the middle of the ground and gazed with a mixed delight and fear at the hole. Would he find me there as on former occasion? Would he come? I held my breath. I strained my sight and hearing in vain, I, the hope and fear of his appearance gradually died out and I left the place bitterly disappointed and walked to a spot about 50 yards away where mulberry trees grew on the slope of the mound inside the moat. Looking up into the masses of big clustering leaves over my head, I spied a bat hanging suspended from a twig. The bats, I must explain, in that part of the world, that illimitable plain where there were no caverns and old buildings and other dark places to hide in by day, are not so intolerant of the bright light as in other lands. They do not come forth until evening, but by day they are content to hitch themselves to the twig of a tree under a thick cluster of leaves and rest there until it's dark. Gazing up at this bat, suspended under a big green leaf, wrapped in his black and buff-coloured wings as in a mantle, I forgot my disappointment, forgot the serpent, and was so entirely taken up with the bat that I paid no attention to a sensation like a pressure or a dull pain on the instep of my right foot. Then the feeling of pressure increased and was very curious and was as if I had a heavy object like a crowbar lying across my foot and at length I looked down at my feet and to my amazement and horror spied the great black snake slowly drawing his long coil across my instep. I dared not move but gazed down fascinated with the sight of that glistening black cylindrical body drawn so slowly over my foot. He had come out of the moat, which was riddled at the sides with rat holes, and had most probably been there hunting for rats when my wandering steps disturbed him and sent him home to his den, and making straight for it as was as his way was, he came to my foot and instead of going around it, drew himself over it. After the first spasm of terror I knew I was perfectly safe, that he would not turn upon me so long as I remained quiescent and would presently be gone from sight, and that was my last sight of him. In vain I watched and waited for him to appear on many subsequent days, but that last encounter had left in me a sense of a mysterious being dangerous on occasion, as when attacked or insulted and able in some cases to inflict death with a sudden blow, but harmless and even friendly or beneficent towards those who regarded it with kindly and reverent feelings in place of hatred. It is in part the feeling of the Hindu with regard to the cobra, which inhabits 
his house and may one day accidentally cause his death, but is not to be persecuted. Possibly something of that feeling about serpents has survived in me, but in time, as my curiosity about all wild creatures grew, as I looked more on them with the naturalist's eye, the mystery of the large black snake pressed for an answer. It seemed impossible to believe that any species of snake of large size and black as jet or anthracite coal in colour could exist in any inhabited country without being known, yet no person I interrogated on the subject had ever seen or heard of such an ophidian. The only conclusion appeared to be that this snake was the sole one of its kind in the land. Eventually I heard of the phenomenon of melanism in animals, less rare in snakes perhaps than in animals of other classes, and I was satisfied that the problem was partly solved. My serpent was a black individual of a species of, this, of some other colour. But it was not one of our common species, not one of those I knew. It was not a thick, blunt-bodied serpent like our venomous pit viper, our largest snake, and though in shape it conformed to our two common harmless species, it was twice as big as the biggest specimens I had ever seen of them. Then I recalled that two years before my discovery of the black snake, our house had been visited by a large unknown snake which measured two or three inches over six feet, it was similar in form to my black serpent. The colour of this strange and unwelcome visitor was a pale greenish-grey, with numerous dull black mottlings and spots. The story of its appearance is perhaps worth giving. It happened the day I had a babysitter. Sorry, it happened the day I had a baby sister, who could just toddle about on two legs, having previously gone on all fours. One midsummer day she was taken up and put on a rug in the shade of a tree twenty-five yards from the sitting room and left alone there to amuse herself with her dolls and toys. After half an hour or so she appeared at the door of the sitting room where her mother was at work and standing there with wide open astonished eyes and moving her hand and arm as if to point to the place she came from, she uttered the mysterious word cuckoo. Here's a wonderful word which the southern, Af southern South American mother teaches her child from the moment it begins to toddle, and is often in a desert, in a desert and desert and sparsely inhabited country where biting, stinging, and other injurious creatures are common. For babies, when they learn to crawl and to walk, are eager to investigate and have no natural sense of danger. Take as an illustration the case of the gigantic hairy brown spider, which is excessively abundant in summer and has the habit of wandering about as if always seeking something, something it cannot find, it knows not what. And in these wanderings, it comes in at the open door and rambles about the room. At the sight of such a creature, the baby is snatched up with the cry of cuckoo and the intruder slain with a broom or other weapon and thrown out. Cuckoo means dangerous. And the terrified gestures and expression of the nurse or mother when using the word sink into the infant mind. And when that sound or word is heard, there is an instant response, as in the case of a warning note or a cry uttered by a parent bird which causes the young to fly away or crouch down and hide. The child's gestures and the word it used caused her mother to run to the spot where it had been left in the shade, and to her horror she saw there a huge serpent coiled up in the middle of the rug. Her cries brought my father on the scene, and seizing a big stick he promptly dispatched the snake. 
The child, said everybody, had had a marvellous escape, and as she had never previously seen a snake and could not intuitively know it is dangerous or cuckoo, it was conjectured that she had made some gesture or attempted to push the snake away when it came onto the rug and that it had reared its head and struck viciously at her. Recalling this incident, I concluded that this unknown serpent, which had been killed because it wanted to share my baby sister's rug, and my black serpent were one and the same species, possibly, they had been mates, and that they had strayed a distance away from their native place, or else were the last survivors of a colony of their kind in our plantation. It was not until 12 or 13 years later that I discovered that it was even as I had conjectured, that it was even as I had conjectured, at a distance of about 40 miles from my home, or rather from the home of my boyhood, where I no longer lived, I found a snake that was new to me, the Philodrius scoti of naturalists, a not uncommon Argentine snake, and recognised it as the same species as the one found coiled up on my little sister's rug, and presumably as my mysterious black serpent. Some of the specimens which I measured exceeded six feet in length. <coughs> oh, excuse me. All right, that's the chapter. Snake stuff. Um, all right. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.